This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles. If you're into nerd culture or if you're into collecting memorabilia, sports memorabilia, that is, please visit firstrow.ca, use promo code THEPODCAST20. Everything you see there is in Canadian funds, so to all you American listeners, it's a little bit cheaper rate. But don't worry, international listeners, they ship worldwide as well. Like I said, they got comic books, they got signed wrestling figures, signed wrestling pictures, they got now on the rise is hockey cards and all sort of trading cards, they got it there. Please visit them daily. They update daily, so there's no reason not to. And if you're into nerd culture and that sort of stuff, you're probably into video games and also books. If so, please visit BossFightBooks.com today for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like NBA Jam, The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, Silent Hill 2, and so many others. Everything you see there is in ebook format and paperback so there's no excuse please visit them today and if you want to support me directly please visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device it's embedded right there in the description click that link takes you right to my merchandise store i got everything from hoodies to t-shirts to travel mugs to covid masks anything you need or want it is there but if you don't want to support me monetarily it's totally understandable the easiest thing you could do the most free thing you could do thing that takes you two seconds is please rate subscribe review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So, this week's guest is a British professional wrestler. He is a two-time X-Division champ, TNA tag champ, TNA television champ, Ring of Honor peer champ, and IWGP tag team champ. Recently back out of retirement, Doug Williams. Hello Steve, good to see you, thanks for having me on. No, thank you for being here my friend, how's it going over there in jolly old England as us Canadians like to call it? Well yeah, I mean you know, it's the same as everywhere, we're, uh, we're all sitting at home doing very very little at the moment, because everything's closed down, we're all locked down, um, Right. so you know I kind of potter around, I go out to the supermarket, get my food, come back, do my home workout and then sit and watch television. 
what else can you do nowadays? <laughs> you know what? That's true. Me, me and my wife are the yeah. same thing. Every weekend, it's always like, oh, what are we going to do this weekend? Well, I guess we got to pick a movie and or just watch some TV because what else can you do other than going for walks and sort of that stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. No, I don't know. Well, um, I mean, I don't know um, your uh, the, the plan of your government in, in Canada here, but mm-hmm. here when they've kind of set out a roadmap of dates where things are going to start opening up. Okay. So, of course, everybody... Everybody has a, a vague idea of, of when things will start opening up again, so that gives you a little bit of hope. Um, you know, it gives you a little bit, gets you a little bit prepared. Well, I'm not, I'm not really sure how. I mean, what, what's Canada like? Are you totally locked down. Well, we're open? we're sort of we have like what they call colored zones. So we were in a total lockdown, and now we're in the like second highest zone, which is called the gray zone for some reason. And only certain stuff is open. So outdoor dining is allowed right now. But stuff like uh, barbershops and salons, you can't still go to. Gyms just officially opened up as well. But again, it's all in, in, in limits and stuff. I know our government is just on a, a week-to-week basis. They don't have no plan rolled out. I'm assuming they do, but they're not telling us. So it's they have sure. those press conferences just so they're up there looking pretty like they always do. And then after they yeah. tell us what's going on and we just deal with it, right? Yeah, that's it. We just do what you want. <laughs> I think you're a little, little ahead of us then because... Our gyms don't open again until the 12th of April. Oh, shit. So I've got weeks to wait, yeah. So it's body weight exercises for me, you know, stretching and running around my uh, living room. <laughs> oh, my God. So I mentioned it off the top. You recently came back from retirement. So when did you actually retire, and what was the reason why you retired the first time around? Um, I actually retired in 2018. Um, it was... Uh, I lost a... Stipulation match in September of 2018. You know, if I lost, I would retire. But the plan was to retire at the end of 2018 anyway. Mm. Um, and the reason for that was uh, at the time, I wanted to spend more time with my family, and uh, I was a bit sick of the travelling. Uh, and uh, injuries had started mounting up, and I needed to really get those sorted out. Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a couple of other reasons as well. The, 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 the vast wealth of talent in the UK at the time, you know, I, I felt I needed to step aside and let them, you know, uh, let them take over, if you like, the uh, the scene as it was. So all these right. things kind of culminated in my decision. Um, a lot of things have changed in my life since then. Um, obviously, a lockdown's happened. I have had surgeries to fix some of my injuries. Mm. So, um, you know, it's... it's it, those are the key things and reasons for coming back. But, um, yeah, the reasons for retiring were, were many at the time. So what did you do before the lockdowns happened? What was your plan after wrestling? Uh, well, I was still doing training seminars. Okay. I was still um, coaching places. I was still um, working on shows and, you know, I'd come in as a general manager or commissioner type role oh, or okay. matchmaker or I'd work behind the scenes helping book and run the shows, sure. helping the younger talent with their matches, that sort of thing. So I, I still had kind of regular a regular input into the scene. I, I, I wasn't as travelling as much, but I'd travel maybe once a month somewhere, which suited me perfectly at that time. It meant I spent more time at home, which is what I kind of wanted. Um I could slow down my training regime a little bit so I wasn't working out so hard, mm. keeping myself in condition so much all the time. Um, and, and that's how I was. And that's how, for most of 2019, or all of 2019, and then the very start of 2020, that's, that, that's how it was. And it was, it, was, it was good. It was good. So what's your end goal of all this uh, coming out of re- retirement? Well, I don't know if I've got an end goal, but I have 
some goals. I've got um, some goals I'd like to achieve now that that, um, that I didn't really have before. And um, the main one was uh, I want to help try and re- rebuild the British scene up in this country again. Mm. Um, not only because of lockdown and what happened there, but there was a lot of I don't know if you know about the Me Too speaking out. Yeah, of course. Thing that happened last yeah. year, um, and that's had a detrimental effect. I think. Mm-hmm. What we all do on the on the on the scene when we when it comes back, right? So I just want to be there to help bolster the scene up again and, and help help push it back to how it was back in 2018 when they were just almost at its peak. Um, and coupled with that as well, I've kind of um, I'd love to get back to America. Mm. Oh, I'd love to get back to Canada too, but because mm-hmm. you know but, but <laughs> the last time the American fans saw me was TNA, which right? You know that was really. My run was 12 years ago there, wow. which is a long time. You know? I know, so, right? Time flies. And, yeah, <laughs> right. So 2010 was the exhibition run. Wow. So I'm going to, you know, I want to I get back to America and remind the American fans of what who Doug Williams is and what he can do and that he's still capable. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, before we get any further, I, I want to know f- from the start, what got you into wrestling? What, as a child, made you a fan, or did you even become a fan maybe later in, on in your life? No, I, I used to go when I was very young, like okay. 10, 11 years old. My dad used to take me to the live shows, which would run, like, weekly in the area that I was in. You know, we're talking, like, 19, early 1980s. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I used to go and enjoy them. Um, I wouldn't say... Uh, from that age, it left me a lasting impression of being a fan. But then, thirteen or fourteen years old, we got uh, we got uh, Sky Television here, which is like cable, but obviously in in, in the UK, satellite was right. satellite broadcast was so much more popular than cable. Yes. So we got Sky, and um, I saw first event I ever saw on there was uh, wrestling event I ever saw on there was WrestleMania three. Mm. Uh, just me away. That was incredible. Um, and I say I was 14, I think, at that point. So then I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to uh, be a wrestler from that age. That's crazy. Um, so, but I always yeah. wanted to know too, as being f- from Britain and all that, how do you guys view the American product? And especially as a child, because you said you watched WrestleMania 3, but you also went to the live show. So what was like the, the common thing about wrestling over there? Well, I mean, it was night and day in terms of presentation because the UK, you know, British shows have always been based around town halls and smaller venues mm. with you know smaller guys. It's a very hold based, map based. And they still presented it, presented it very much as a sport, right? You know, as it was on TV at the time. It was there was a very strict set of guidelines on how it was presented, and um, obviously the American stuff was totally different to that. It was like <laughs> everything ramped up a thousand times. You know the 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 size of the arenas, the size of the, the human beings doing the, the, the moves they were doing. It was, it was just so, so totally different to what was then the standard uh, British wrestling. And um, to be honest with you, I, when I came back to England, which was probably 90, I came back to England in 1989, okay. and then got, British wrestling got taken off, taken off of television in this country. Wow. around then and it was like two, two or three years before I started trading to be wrestling anyway but yeah it was uh, they were vastly different animals back then well that's crazy <laughs> well early on in your career too you, you wrestled in Japan for Noah how was all that experience being so young and I guess sort of say green in, in the sport right 
No, I wasn't green because oh, I was okay. already I was already ten years into my oh shit ten years into my career when I went okay. to Noah. Okay. I started in '93. I started wrestling in 1993, and uh, gotcha. my first tour of Noah was in May 2003. Okay, okay. So I was already ten years. So I wasn't I wasn't that green, and thankfully, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't treated as such by the the, the, um, the the wrestling office there. They put me, you know, they um they they looked after me, protected me, and uh, allowed me to do what I wanted to do in the ring. And I wrestled some great great guys, but always. That was always my kind of end goal in wrestling. Mm. At that time, was to get to Japan and wrestle in Japan for one of the major promotions, um, of which Noah was one of the three at that time. And um, yeah, and I, and I achieved that, so I was pretty happy with myself, excited, <laughs> um, and it was everything I expected it to be and more. And what was like the biggest differences coming from England going all the way over to, to Japan in terms of like wrestling and stuff? What was the thing that you were like, oh my god, I didn't even know this existed over here? In terms of wrestling, right? Was there anything, yeah. or did you watch all the tapes and you knew what you're getting yourself into? No, I was a huge all Japan fan um, when I was, you know, from from kind of the age of sixteen, seventeen okay. upwards. I used to get all the tapes from. You know the tape traders that existed in the UK get all the video tapes, so I knew. Sure. You know, I knew the wrestlers because most of the guys from Nara were in New, all, you know, nearly all of them were in all Japan. Okay. Uh, so I was familiar with you know ninety percent of the guys there. Um, in terms of style and what was different to English, English rings are very small. Mm, okay. The, maybe you get an eighteen foot, and now, nowadays they're bigger, but. Back, back when you know, in the peak of my career, most of them were 16 or 18 foot. Sure. I mean, the Japan rings are 24 foot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they're huge. You know, they're huge. So I had to kind of adapt to that. Um, obviously, their style of wrestling is, is, is somewhat different to to how we portray it in this country. Mm. Um, you know, so uh, also they're, they're not big on the, the villain type characters in Japan so much they're more you know there's no villains there's kind of monster monster foreigners isn't there you know right. big fearsome beasts uh, the, the, the valiant warriors are fighting off it's more that kind of vibe as opposed to here's a baddie and here's a goodie you know and it's cowboys and Indians it's, it's totally the psychology of how they you know promote their matches is totally different oh, in that respect Oh, that's cool. Uh, okay, so what about in terms of taking anything away from Japan? Is there anything you incorporated into your style from wrestling in Japan? Uh, yeah, uh, probably hit people a lot harder than they were expecting. When I <laughs> <laughs> used to cut, um, there wasn't a huge amount I took back, really. I think um, the ability to... Um, uh, yeah. It's going to sound really weird, but the ability to uh, shout out, make sounds when you're wrestling in order to, it doesn't sound like you're wrestling in silence, oh, okay. but it makes it sound like there's so much more to the moves that you're doing than, right. you're, than, you're, than you're actually doing. It's something that the Japanese are very good at for some reason, um, and they put real fire and passion behind every move. So even though it sounds like it's killing you, it might not actually necessarily be killing you. Right. I think that's one, one, one thing I took away from working there. Um, I, nearly 90% of the matches you do in Japan are tag matches 
So, I mean, if you, if you took a typical typical uh, Jack, uh, Noah card, mm-hmm. it would be like five tag matches, then two singles matches at the top. Sure. So, I learned a lot about tag wrestling. Mm. I learned how to work good tag matches, um, which prior to that, I probably was had a little bit of experience, but relatively limited experience in. So, I've made singles up to that point. Oh wow, cool. So okay, so when you came over to the States, was Ring of Honor like your first major promotion that you wrestled in? Well, I've done some independence before that. Okay. Um, I took a tournament called King of Indies. Oh, okay. Which happened in San Francisco in, in two thousand and one. It's actually the inspiration for the creation of Ring of Honor. Oh because they saw the tape and all the people that are on that. Right. And, and the, the, the people that formed Ring of Honor and, and, and um and decided that they could run a promotion based around that style that, that was presented in this tournament, which was kind of a sports-based presentation, very technical, mm-hmm. lots of different styles meshing and coming together, um, although everyone still had character as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was in San Francisco. That was 2001. I worked for another a few other indie promotions on the north, east coast, Boston-wise and everything, just before that as well, which was my first taste for America. Um and then, yeah, Ring of Honor was in June of 2002, I think, my first match show for them. So I think it was like their third third show, third or fourth show I worked for them. Oh, wow. So you're pretty much an original then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was in their, their, their road, to, road to the Title was the, first, the name of the first show that I was part of. Because obviously they had single elimination matches. Mm-hmm. Which led to the four-way title match, which was on the next show. After that, now crowned their first ever champion. You wrestled a ton of up-and-coming talent there in Ring of Honor. All the pretty much who became main stable ten years later. Did you know all these guys were going to do it, or were you like, ah, some of these are going to? Or did you see like a big improvement in other guys that you thought weren't going to make it? Uh, I saw. It's interesting. You can see the guys that okay, they're settled with what they're doing. So are they going any further? I don't know. They don't. They, to them, the pinnacle of what they wanted with from their career was their Ring of Honor. Mm-hmm. So you knew that they. But there's other guys that are clearly going to be huge stars. Right. Samoa, you know, Samoa Joe. I knew was going to be huge. Of course. You know, he just he looked a beast. He was great in the ring. Um, yeah. So yeah, you, you get a flavour of it. But there's other guys that you think are going to be huge, and then they just. Peace all away, you never hear about them again. Right. And it's usually through some other personal issue in their life or they got injury issue or whatever it might be. Maybe they found a new passion. True. You know, at some point in their life. You just don't know you can never you can never tell. Yeah, no kidding. And you also you had a second run in Ring of Honor, I think, towards the end of your career, twenty fifteen around that time? Is that right? No. No, no you never went I, back? You're thinking of I got I'm under contract to them now. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe I that's what it is. Them. I signed with them beginning of last year. Oh. They were run the pure, they, they're running a new pure, pure title tournament, you know, okay. the pure championship. And um, they were, you know, they, they, they signed me to a two-year contract. Um, and before I could get to do anything for them, the pandemic hit. Of course. Everything, yeah. But I'm still under contract them and it runs to the end of this year. So if it opens up again, Oh, sure. Hopefully this year I'll be able to get out there and do something for him. Yeah, because I was going to say the pure title is back, as you know, and I'm sure you, that's something you, you're looking towards to get your hands on. Is there anyone currently in Ring of Honor that you're looking forward to facing off against? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Jonathan Gresham. I know, he 
he, I'm familiar with him. He was over in, in, in England and Europe uh, learning the style. So I'd love to get back in the ring with him and, and wrestle him. Uh, my old friend, Jay Lethal. Ah. I'd love to get back in the ring with him. We had a big feud in TNA. Right. So always a pleasure to wrestle him. So, yeah, that's good. That'd be, uh, I look forward to that. When it happens, I won't say if, I'll say when. <laughs> exactly. So when you came over here to North America, did you have to change anything or did anyone tell you, like, you're a little bit too British for our style? Is there anything you needed to tone down? No, no, because I was never, I was never, like, wholly trained in just the British style. I, okay. I, I you know, I'd worked and <laughs> the British style had evolved anyway, changing, it became more Americanized anyway. Mm. And, um, I would, you know, I, I really just took influences. I took bite-sized pieces of British, the British style and insert them into my own, you know, move set or whatever you want to call it. You know, right. my own, um, stuff that I did in the ring. So no, one, no, I never. Really, it was always people wanting, asking me, "Oh, can we do this or can we do that?" Because they'd yeah. never done it before. They wanted to learn. <laughs> so yeah, it was always good in that respect, you know. And it's always something unique for the American fans to see that because nine times out of ten we can do a few combinations that they've never even seen before. Right. Which I always appreciate. Yeah, no kidding. And then obviously you had your TNA run. That's like you said, that's what you're most known for. You had your longest stretch yeah. there. Yeah. How, how did it all? How did all that get started? How? When did you get signed to TNA? And when did the, the whole thing get when you teamed up with Nick Aldis forming the British Invasion? Well, I got signed in 2008 off the back of. TNA ran their first ever UK tour. Oh, and they, okay. were British, they wanted a British guy on it, and I was put forward. So um, they they put me on the tour. Then off, off the back of my performance on the tour, they signed me. Um, but I, I still had some dates uh, with Noah in Japan that mm-hmm. I had to tours I had to fulfil. And that that the last tour for Noah was February two thousand and nine. So I finished up on that tour. Okay. Um, and in the meantime, TNA had signed Nick and um, they made that decision. They're going to put us together in a tag team. So I think I got that call in April mm. 2009. This is what we're going to do with you, pardon me. This is what we're going to do with you. Um, and I think the first time we went over was, I think, May 2009 was the first set of tapings. Where I was part of the British invasion. Right. So how did that name come together? Did he just bestow that name or was there other names in the running? Did you guys come up with it? No, it's a Vince Russo name, I think. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's an old 60s reference to when all the pop bands and rock bands used to come over to America, of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Right. They were that, they, it was, at that, that point in time, it was called the British Invasion because all these huge bands were coming over and selling out your arenas in the States. And I think that's what, you know, the magazines, the <laughs> music magazines at the time, that's what they, that's the phrase, they coined that phrase, the British Invasion. That's where Vince Russo got it from, as far as I know. Oh, gotcha. So when did they add Rob Terry into it? Yeah, they already had Rob signed, and they, you know, they didn't know what to do with him per se. So he's Welsh, so he he natural fit for the British invasion sure. as well. And uh, you know, he's um, and really, you know, it's kind of the, the the meaning and the 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 method for putting us together because uh, I was the established veteran was to, mm. was for me to help them learn uh-huh. to help them develop and grow being within the within the team with me they can I can give them tips and help them and tweak things they're doing and help them improve that was really the whole point of it 
And the one thing now looking back is I can't believe you guys only had that title once. Like looking back, I thought you guys held it like three, four times. Like it was, it's such a big memory of mine where the British Invasion was such a staple of the tag team division. Because again, TNA at that time had every every who's who in, in every division pretty much from the heavyweights to the tag teams to the knockouts, right? That At that time, TNA was stacked. So how long was your actual run with Nick then? Well, not long, you see. It was only a year. I, and, oh, shit, um, that's it? <laughs> I don't even know if it's a year, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I think he could have gone on longer. It's odd though because they would put us back together for for the odd um, tour, sure. like UK tour. They would put us back together as a fiction patient. But uh, I mean, in actuality, uh, it yeah, it ran off say from May two thousand and nine. It ran through to maybe February and March of the next year. That's and then right. we split and I became exhibition champion. Right. But, it, you know, I, it, I considered it was too soon. Um, and poor Nick ended up sitting at home mm. for most of 2010 because they didn't have any idea for him. Right. Whilst I was do, whilst I was being exhibition champion. So it was, I mean, I, you know, I just, uh, we could we could got a lot more out of it, I think. Yeah, no kidding. I, I, me, I, I never... Like you say, the tag team division was stacked, and we had good we had good runs against Team 3D, yeah, uh, and we had good runs against BM Money, obviously. But mm-hmm. I never thought we maximised uh, what we could have got out of a run with Motor City Machine Guns. Um, I think we only had like one or two matches with them, and we could have had a great, you know, longer run with those guys. But uh, it wasn't to be, obviously. Powers did, the powers that be decided otherwise. Yeah, no kidding. And now one thing I got to know was when you joined Fortune, how was it being in a stable led by Ric Flair? I, I got to know. Do you have any Ric Flair stories? <laughs> no, not really. I don't have anything. You know, he was you know, relatively well-behaved when he was he was there. Okay. Um, it was fine. I mean, the difficulty with that is that there was a, a, group, of, a group of six guys. It's just getting your airtime. Right. You know, it's getting your voice heard. It's getting, you know getting staying noticed within that group and that was the thing I think I, I struggled hardest with mm. you know you got you when you when you're putting a group like that you you have to work extra hard to make yourself noticed all the time sure. those other five guys they're all doing the same thing too mm-hmm. so you know it was it was, um, it was obviously nice to be put in that position but it was also also a struggle yeah no kidding and how was it a struggle turning face for the first time too also in TNA no, not particularly. I mean, I wrestled face before. Okay. Always, almost always a face in England. Um, I, I was always puzzled if the fans would accept me as such, but I slowly mm. tried to morph away from presenting myself as being too British. Uh. You know what I mean? Because for the American crowd, you just don't want to, you know, they, if you can try and disassociate yourself with that period when you're a heel, right. and how you looked, and kind of change it up a little bit. And hopefully it's a little bit more effective, you know. Um, yeah, no kidding. But my run as a baby face was so short, I couldn't tell you if it was <laughs> successful or not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a preference, actually? Yeah, I prefer working heel, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's easier to get someone to hate you, <laughs> to get them to like you, in the context right. of a wrestling ring. Uh, and um, it's also easier to get the other guy over. If you're oh. if you're a heel, they hate you. Right. They're automatically going to sympathise with the other guy. You sure. Know? But it's easy, but it's easy for them to like the other guy and not really care about the heel. Mm. That's the worst thing you can have. People who don't care about you. 
So with all that stacked roster back in TNA, was there one person that you didn't get to wrestle that you wish you did? Um, not really. Uh, there is. I would. I've liked. I did a five-minute TV match with Kurt Angle. Oh, okay. I've had a pay-per-view match against him. Right. For for, for like a decent amount of time sure. instead. Yeah, you know, a fifteen twenty-minute match. I'd have. I'd have. I'd love to have had that. That's probably the biggest. My biggest wish that, that never, never, never occurred, unfortunately. Yeah, not kidding. And okay, you also were teaching in OVW during your TNA run. How did all that c- come about? Yeah, that was kind of towards the end. So okay, because they didn't really have anything for me at the time, um. and they just started up this uh, developmental arrangement with OVW. They sent me down there to be a trainer, okay. an agent, and. Um, it was, it was, it was taking the positive spin on it. It helped me develop some skills that I wasn't, you know, that I hadn't had before in terms of writing and producing television, wrestling television, mm. but also booking and agenting house shows. Sure, all of that um, was something I'd never had experience of before. So that was that was useful, useful to be able to learn all that and do it week in, week out. You know, mm. because you you'd have to write, you know, the right TV on the Monday. We'd film it on the Wednesday, house shows at the weekend, and then back to writing TV again on the Monday. So it was a, it was a, it was an interesting process. Now, how was it back then? Was it just a bunch of people off the street that were totally green, or was it guys that were from the indie scene and they were just brushing up on some skill? Yeah, no, there was there was guys that were like long-standing OVW regulars that have been there for years, oh, okay. and just kind of lived in and around Kentucky. Sure. It was just so, you know, just. Wanted to be part of the scene there, so they, they were on, they were they were there, and then there's guys from TNA, the TNA sent down there that needed a little bit more seasoning, mm. a little bit more training, um, and then there was a few established veterans and people like myself, and then people would come in occasionally, you know. So it was a mixture of everything. Oh, that's pretty cool. And what's your biggest pet peeve when teaching someone anything towards wrestling? My pet peeve. Yeah, like what's the what's the thing that bothers you the most? <laughs> Well, I have a thing called fussy feet. Oh, okay. Uh, it's you see it all the time in trainees when they're locking up and they're grappling and they're moving around the ring. Right. They, they haven't got their feet placed firmly on the ground. They're kind of shuffling their feet about, moving sure. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I say to them, just stop. Put yourself in one position and stay there. Okay. When you move around the th- ring, it must be methodical. It's, you, you've got to, you're showing people where you are all the time. But yeah, a lot. Trainees are kind of shuffle about when they find it's a nervousness thing, or they're unsure of themselves. Um, but nearly all trainees seem to do it. Um, I, I, I kind of harken back to my judo days, where mm. you know I don't, you're probably aware. You, you, you say you, you're heavy into MMA and things like that, but as a, as a grappler, right. you want to keep your feet firmly on the ground okay. because any moment you've lost a balance and you take one foot off. Away you go, you're being thrown, aren't you? Right. You're taken over. Um, and that is a large part of my judo training. And that's what, you know, I try to say to these guys you, 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 if you're in a real fight, your feet, you've got to put them firmly on the ground. You don't want anyone to take you over. You, know, you don't want to take anyone to take you off balance. Mm-hmm. And when you're shuffling around on your fussy feet, moving about, so, you know, <laughs> you're, you're game for anything then. You can be taken over at any time. So just think about it in that capacity. It might slow you down, it might make you a little bit more more um, solid with your footing and your positioning. 
I know it makes sense because the one thing, okay, everyone knows it's out of the bag. Wrestling's a work, of course, but you still want to make it look real. You don't want to have, you want the whole thing. My barometer is when a stranger walks in that has never watched wrestling, I don't want him to point and laugh and say, oh, what are you watching? I want to be like, oh, what's going on here, right? And that's how you lure, I guess, new fans in, right? That's it. And um, moreover than that, if guys are like shuffling about and they're not staying still, it's, it's distracting on the eye to watch. It's not a comfortable thing to watch anyway. As a fan, you want to be concentrating, you want to be intense, you want to be focusing on the action. You don't want to be looking at a guy who's kind of nervously shuffling about. So yeah, it's got that, it's got that factor to it as well that, that um, you want it to have some credibility at least when you, a non-fan watches it so they're not mocking it. But it's also to make it easier on the eye for the spectators who are there who are already wrestling fans. Exactly. And again, like you said, me being an MMA fan, I like that sort of realness. Like even when someone goes for a clothesline, like that limp noodle, as they call it, like, okay, everyone knows you're going to duck that line. Like you're not making it look real or even hitting the ropes, like all nonchalantly and stuff. Like you want everything to mean something. And it's the small stuff that matters, right? It, it does. And it's a lot, a, lot, a lot of that is lost because a lot of people think it doesn't matter. Right. Well, it does. I'll try and get that over if I do seminars and, and, and things like that and uh, yeah people go back to just wanting to do all the big flashy moves all the time and it's, it's like um, I think I it was, it was a phrase I think um, Kurt Hennig coined mm-hmm. uh, that's the moves in between the moves that are important thank you <laughs> Exactly, exactly, and it makes sense because even myself, growing up in Canada, obviously we have the Hart family and all these great technical sound wrestlers up here. I grew up as loving technical wrestlers, like because it's all those like small things. Like you watch a Bret Hart match, everything is snug, everything is made to mean something. It's not just lost time, right? Yeah, that's right, and it's even it's even down to ensuring the guys in the right position for whatever you want to do to him, mm. rather than just dragging him into position, or rather than him walking into position you've created you've created some way to feasibly make him end up in the position that you want him to be in and i think a lot of that is lost now there's a lot of thought is put into the structure structure of matches are we going to do this move then we're going to do this move mm-hmm. then we're going to do this move but no one thinks about the okay so how are we going to get into that position is that credible is that would, would people believe that's going to happen it's, you know it's actually you know it's like setting up tables and things like that mm-hmm. they they leave your guy lying on the floor and you're, going, you're setting up a table and you're taking 10 seconds to set up the table and the guy's still lying there. Right. You know, it's not... And you know, you're harking back to Bret Hart. You know, he, I've seen him do table spots, but it's always been like he's accidentally gone for the announcer's table. Right. So even the table was already there. No one spent hours setting it up or you know, minutes or whatever setting it up. It was there. It was an accident. And I think um, a lot of that, a lot of that is lost now. The art of you know, just making it look a bit more credible and legitimate. Um, and, you know, unfortunate. But, uh, Let's hope it's not lost forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, here. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a little bit. How about this? Okay. Now, everyone's saying that the, the times have changed. The new generation of people don't want to watch this so-called old-time wrestling, as I put up parentheses. They want to see the high spots, the dives, like you said, the table breaks, like the hardcore, the death matches, as they call now. But us growing up, like in my case, I don't, I didn't want to see just only headlocks and just your plain suplexes. I wanted a little bit more. So it evolved. So what do you say to those people? Like this is the next evolution of wrestling. Well, I say those matches are fine. Those situations are fine, but it's the context in which they are presented. You, you're uh, trying to get 
you're trying to get guys over as stars. Okay. You're trying to build up feuds. You want to build up these feuds. You want to build up these programs. They reach a crescendo. They reach a point, and that point should be when you have those hardcore matches, when you have those huge, you know, uh, kind of payoffs where, where you have blood and the brutality and you have all these mm. things that seem to just be a matter of course nowadays, you know? Right. And, um, you know, on the other side, you're saying all the, all the high spots and the flipping and flying, well, there's a place for that in wrestling. You know, mm. there's, there's a place for that. There's a place for brawling. There's no, there's no right or wrong, but it's just make sure you just get a little bit of a story in there, a bit of credibility, a little bit of selling at least, and just make people get yourself over sure. as well as all the moves that you're doing. Um, and it can mix well, you know, like there's plenty of fans of um, the new style that, that love watching stuff from 20 or 30 years ago still. That's true. You know, so it's, it's not, it's not, a, it's, it's, it's only a lot of them are not aware of it. And when you show them something from 20, they go, look, here, here's a Rey Mysterio against Eddie Guerrero from WCW in 1990, you know, 1996. And they're like, wow, right. they're blown away by it. But it's the same sort of high stock spot orientated match. But it's done in a, in the context of a story and setting so much, so much better than it, it seems to be nowadays. A lot of the time, I'm not saying that across the board. Right, of course. Now, no, it's so true, and that's I guess in life in general, we always lean either it's too much of one thing or too little of another. It's never the in between yeah. that we always find. Like you know what I mean, and sure. that goes for everything I guess in life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you always find a gem in the rough somewhere, don't you? True. So. Yeah, no kidding. How about the whole controversy nowadays? Because the whole big topic is these leg slaps. What do you think about all this? Well, it just hurts. I mean, it's a problem when people are doing it on each and every occasion that they hit something or someone. Don't they? You want to make it mean something. You want if you want to if you want to let it, if you want to slap your leg to act, accentuate or exaggerate the effect of something, right. make it sound incredible. Just do it that one time when it really matters. That makes sense. Don't do it a dozen times. It's diminishing returns every time it happens, you know? So I'm not a fan of batting them, but I'm, it, it, <laughs> right. it, it, it's a case of doing it when it really means something. I keep, now sure. I'm sounding like a broken record here, but it just keeps harking back to the same thing, you know? It's that credibility again, isn't it? Yeah, And um, exactly. It's, you know, when I, when I, when I forearm someone in the face... If I did that for real in a real fight, it wouldn't sound like I've slapped him. Right. <laughs> no, I totally get it. Exactly. It, it, it's so true. If, if you go take the bottom of your boot and go hit someone in the bottom of their chin, it's not going to sound like a slap, right? No, no. But it might do. If I, you know, if I if I kicked them against my their thigh, yes, my, you know, that might sound like a slapping sound. So you, true. You know, incredibility, credibility of doing it then is fair enough, isn't it? Yeah, no kidding. Because yeah, it's so true. Now that you bring that up, it's right. Because you could do it so many places. You could kick someone in the ribs, in the back of the neck, like the crescent kick yeah. or something, right? That would be for yeah. a slap, not a straight super kick, right? No, that's right. That's right. There we are. <laughs> well, you mentioned it a, a, a bit back right now. Uh, you do web webinars. How do you do? How do you train someone in wrestling over the internet? What do you do? Is it just strictly psychology that you teach over these sessions? Generally, yeah. I mean, okay. it's a Q and A where people ask questions, and then I would, I would, yeah, yeah, I would give them the answers based on on whatever they've asked me. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of one I, the other day, someone asked me about, um, 
they were saying about incorporating MMA moves into mm. into a wrestling match, and I just sure. said, well, if you try and do it straight, all you're going to do is look like a poor imitation of MMA. Yes. And people are just going to laugh it off. You know, MMA, MMA, MMA fans are just going to say that's a load of rubbish. Yeah. Wrestling fans are just going to go, well, this is, you know, I don't really know what's going on here. Take an MMA move, submission, whatever you want to do, exaggerate it, make it more flamboyant, more showy, Thank then you. put it into your act. And that way, it'll be the wrestling fans will understand what you're doing. And the MMA wouldn't, an MMA fan wouldn't necessarily say, oh, he's just trying to steal MMA. They, mm-hmm. they, would, they, they probably wouldn't. You know, they might not be a fan of it, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't feel insulted by the fact that someone's trying to do cheap MMA. <laughs> exactly. And it's um, it's just it's just explaining these things to to the to trainees when they're asking questions. Naturally, obviously, it's impossible to practice the mechanics or show the mechanics of wrestling uh, through a webinar. But uh, yeah, it's nearly always about psychology. Uh, there's questions about training, you know, training for for wrestling. Um, there's questions about etiquette and how to present yourself and promoting yourself oh, and all that sort of stuff. So there's a wide range of topics. Have you gotten any like crazy, stupid questions? Like they're just out there and you felt like, why are you even in this session? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to think why right, someone, I mean, <laughs> always, always makes me laugh when people ask, ask me questions that start with, what was it like when you wrestled X or what was it like when you wrestled Y? Oh. And uh, usually I'm like, well, it was just a wrestling match. It's just <laughs> the same as wrestling any other guy. Sure. Um, you know, I just, uh, and I'm not even talking, like, if they asked me like, they said, what was it like wrestling Kurt Angle? Because he's such, you know, he's perceived to be one of the greatest wrestlers on the planet. Sure. I'd be like, yeah, it was really, you know, he lives up to that hype. He is one of the rest, greatest wrestlers on the planet. And when I wrestled him, that is what it felt like. You know, but that's fine. But if someone right. just says, what's it like to wrestle, uh, you know, I don't know, what's it like to wrestle Brian Danielson? Right. I'll go, it was great. <laughs> Brian Danielson, I can't elaborate on it, you know? Right. So, <laughs> they're just the sort of things that, you know, in trade, when you're doing webinars, it's frustrating because that's more like a fan question uh... as opposed to question that's in you know that's about how, how to be a better wrestler you know? it's so crazy what some wrestling fans would do because re- reaching out obviously to wrestlers like yourself you know how many times yeah. when i get vetted through the process and when people are asking me questions just to see if i'm legit or not yeah. you know how many times a wrestler has told me that someone just literally starts a podcast so they could talk to their favorite wrestlers and they don't even air it or nothing can you believe this is a thing no i've never even heard of that before <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of that, right? But, um, you know, yeah, but uh, <laughs> wrestlers up, the wrestlers have fallen foul of that. They should do a little bit of research. I tend to check out the, the interview requests I get. Sure. And if someone's got like five followers on Twitter, right, <laughs> gonna, you know what I mean? Sure. So where, where's the benefit to me in the exposure going on a podcast of that nature? So. I guess you know. I, I guess a lot of wrestlers are trying to be nice and they accept every single offer they get. Right. But wow. No, I've never heard of that before. It's not what you're doing, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've done 216 episodes, but you know what, Doug? You're one of my favorites. I'm going to keep this as just for myself. Do <laughs> uh, <laughs> what you like with it. I don't care. <laughs> Well, speaking of favorites, one thing I do have to say is your your finishing yeah. move is the the rolling German of people don't know the chaos theory. That thing looks so crisp. The angle you get on it. Now, how, how did you come up with this yourself, or was this something you saw through someone else? 
No, I came up. I came up with it myself. Oh, nice! Amazingly enough, just practicing in the ring, trying to work on variations of a German suplex, trying to be creative with that. Um, yeah, it just uh, it just fell together. Um, it's interesting because originally, when I first started doing it, I'd do it off the ropes, so I'd push a guy into the ropes like an O'Connor roll. Sure. Then, um, but like as I, as I mentioned previously, British rings tend to be smaller, uh... <laughs> you know, fourteen to sixteen foot. So yeah. I was like. I've got space here. Mm-hmm. I'm have to run these guys into the corner. And then yeah. I was concerned that there wouldn't be any momentum coming backwards. Because oh. obviously if I hit the ropes, you get that little bit of... But um, so what I learned, well, I'll run them into the corner, but you've got to get a good, fast run-up. So I hit that corner. Right. And those guys, they've got to keep their hands down. Because they can put their hands up and grab the ropes. Sure. So some guys grab the ropes thinking they can help by pushing. Right. But all it does is as soon as they grab those ropes, it slows that momentum down. Of course. So I have to be very quick in telling guys, guys, just keep your arms down and just take that buckle, and then we'll we'll, we'll roll through, lovely. So it was a yeah, it was an interesting uh, kind of evolution and development of it at a very early stage. Yeah, it's so cool because that's what I was going to ask you. Like, because it not not only involves just totally you doing something, you have to go with the momentum, and the person has to be able to roll with you. And like I said, every time I've seen you pull off this maneuver, it's like because you know sometimes how you see some guys do a roll up, or whatever. It's kind of clunky. Yeah. It's on its side, yeah. but yours was yeah. always a perfect three sixty up over your head, boom, done. Like you know what I mean? And how yeah. did you do this all the time with different wrestlers? Did you practice before or anything? I think I'd be lucky. I've done a few dodgy ones in my okay. time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember wrestling uh, Frankie Kazarian on a house show. Okay. Um, and uh, that was the finish, and we uh, we just hit an awful one. Oh shit! Just like we got like we we we, we, we kind of got stuck, and I turned to the side, right. pulled him up, got him over, and I came backstage, and um, D'Lo Brown was the agent. Okay. And he just looked at me, and he was shaking his head. <laughs> He goes, he should have kicked out and he should have hit another one. Oh. I was like, yeah, I probably should have. <laughs> but uh, right. um, just it's easier to do it on taller guys. I'll tell you that. Oh, because, okay. I get, because my center of gravity is low, lower than theirs. I can right. get right underneath them and it's easy to roll through with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the taller the guy, generally the better. Obviously, lighter guys, it's easier. <laughs> sure. But yeah, I've hit it on a few big, big boys as well. Um, and then I've always got to be wary of my head being crushed. That's so it's true. Big, I have to make sure they're right over me so that their shoulders come down first, you know. Oh, wow. I've had a few, yeah, I've had a few, um, yeah, I've had a couple of concussions off the back of someone landing on my head because they're, they're meaty. But, uh, I was going to say, so who was the biggest person you've ever done it to? Ooh, that's a good question, actually. Um, I have... Done it on Samoa Joe. Oh, there you go. Yeah, he's <laughs> biggest guy. Yeah, and um, funny. I, I, I remember I wrestled. It reminds me of another story involving the Chaos Theory, where I didn't hit it successfully. Right. I was wrestling Joe in Japan, in um, Germany, oh, okay. and they had this canvas that was like vinyl, so it was like sleek. Oh shit! Okay. You know, I mean, like, yeah. like a, le- a pleather effect, like you know, really, really. So you put a drop of water on, 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 water on it, right. you're slipping and sliding all over, all over the shop. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, we're coming to the end of our match, and both me and Joe are sweaty, sweaty as anything. And the finish is supposed sure. to be the Chaos Theory. I run him into the corner. I go backwards. And he comes down, and, and we just slide across the ring on our backs. <laughs> <laughs> the ring was so slippery. That's so it, it fell 
slid all the way across the ring and came on top of me. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it was just, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we just kind of went to a quick submission finish off the back of that. Oh shit, that's hilarious! Okay, before we get to the worst story of the week, I'm gonna—I want to show you some quick questions that are non-wrestling related. How about that? Well, I'll go for it. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Okay, so what's your favorite TV show and movie of all time? Oh yes, Uh, good question. I'm a huge Dirty Harry fan. Oh, so you know, yeah, I I love uh, Lachlan Eastwood movies. However, um, Leonardo DiCaprio is probably my favorite actor okay. all time so I like a few of his movies not Titanic but <laughs> <laughs> a lot of his later ones are sure. absolutely incredible of course I love The Great Gatsby as well that's a great movie oh, wow. don't ask me <laughs> hey we all have ours um, yeah that's it um, uh, my TV show oh god there's so many The Wire Breaking Bad nice they're yeah, just fantastic loved Game of Thrones mm-hmm. um uh, I was even accepting of the finish of Game of Thrones, unlike a lot of people. <laughs> Me too. No, I enjoyed it. I think it was a good way to, yeah. like, because people, like, what do you expect as a finish? Like, the, to me, sure. a finish doesn't need to be the high point. Getting to the no. finish is the high point, in my opinion. And yeah. the finish is just Absolutely. to finish, literally, what it is. Finish the story off. Yeah. Right? That's it. That's it. I think a lot of people just get mad because it's not what they want. Exactly. Finish, you know? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> So some, you know, the silent majority win, and the the, the vocal minority are the ones you always hear about. Don't you? So there we go. Yeah, um, no and then, uh, Sorry, uh, just to finish my favourite TV yeah, shows. Yeah. Uh, there's a show called The Apprentice. Okay. Um, the UK version of okay. it is one of my favourite TV shows. You probably, you know, the US one had Trump in it, so right. I never watched that. But the, American, <laughs> the UK one is one of my favourite TV shows. Because the people on it are idiots. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know one thing? Because, again, uh, I told you off air, I lived in Portugal for a year. And when yeah. I lived in Portugal, I watched Big Brother, the Portuguese version of it. Okay. And <laughs> something about European uh, reality shows, it's there's no holds barred. There's no censoring. There's no nothing. So it would show the people showering, people having sex, people swearing. Whereas the yeah. versions here, they cut all that out. You know what I mean? Sure. Because sure. it's based because yeah. we have that rating system for TV. Yeah. So yeah. that's how I fell in love with Big Brother. And then I still watch it to this day here. But there's just something about that reality show. And I'm sure it's the same thing in Britain as it is in, in Portugal, yeah. right? Yeah, well, you know it's unfiltered then, and you're getting the real deal. Thank you. When they edit so much of it, how do you know that people are being presented accurately and fairly? Right. And what you're seeing is actually, you know, the, 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 the situation is how it went down, or whatever it might be, or how the, how the, how the characters are being portrayed. You just don't know if it's so highly edited. Yeah. Right. We used to, they used to, obviously, Big Brother in the UK, they run an hour show every every day highlighting what went on during the day right but they also had a 24-hour live feed that mm-hmm. you could tune in and watch at any time right <laughs> which is crazy really isn't it well the, so, they adopted that here too but at the like when i first started watching it back when it first started they didn't have that or you had to pay really? for it but then i guess right. they learned from it and now they sure. or they have what they call big brother after dark so you actually hear the okay. swearing and stuff like that but again right. it's still i don't trust stuff on t i'm sorry if it's not completely live live i don't trust it <laughs> no i don't either no, and, and, and you shouldn't rightfully so <laughs> <laughs> all right next question favorite meal Oh, chili. I love chili. Oh, okay. I love Mexican food. And it's 
mainly bad and terrible in this country, unfortunately. <laughs> so I make a lot of my own chilli, which of course is fantastic, tremendous, when I make it myself. <laughs> okay. But I used to, when I lived in America, I used to, oh, it was great, fantastic, just great. Okay, everyone scares me that I talk to that's from England that tells me that the food is horrible because I plan out once all this opens up, my first major trip is either England or Spain. So yeah. what, what's one thing you suggest when I go over there? As Okay, because being in Canada, it's multiculturalism. We, you go to every corner, it's a different type of culture and you get every sense of spice and everything. So what do you recommend as someone new to, to the country, what to try first? I'm not overly familiar with how Indian restaurants are in Canada. I know what they're like in America. They're bloody terrible okay. so I would I would suggest find a good Indian restaurant and sample some really decent Indian cuisine because that okay. is generally top notch in this country um, yeah first and foremost um, just because of the cultural history of uh, the links between um, India Bangladesh mm. and, and, and you know Great Britain going back to the empire days a lot of that influence so that, yeah there's a lot of really really great Indian curry restaurants over here so i'd advise you try one of them if you like curry i don't know but it's uh, worth a worth a shot definitely now how's the f- all fame because we have them here too nando's chicken how is it over there yeah it's okay it, it's good <laughs> enough I, I don't mind i mean it's perfect it's a perfect wrestler's meal you get chicken you get rice don't you, you know right. can't ask for why i just find it a little bit overpriced and uh ah see it, me too yeah what it is you know so yeah. See, because over here, again, we have a big Portuguese uh, c- community here in, in Toronto, right? So we have our yeah. mom and pops that have the Portuguese barbecue chicken. And the yeah. way we compare it is Nando's is McDonald's, whereas these little places, which we call Shudashkedas, are the actual real deal mom and pop. This is what you get if you went right, back okay. to Portugal, right? So that's why I'm scared yeah. of Nando's a little bit. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks, perfect. Okay, coffee or tea? How do you take it? Straight up? Black, yeah. Sometimes some sweetener in it, but yeah, generally I just have it black. Now, this is an interesting one. Are you a video game player? And if so, what was the last video game you've ever played? I'm not a heavy video game player. Okay. I do own a PlayStation. I play almost exclusively FIFA. Oh, nice. Or Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. (laughs) So what's your team? I got to know now. Fulham's my team. Okay. Yeah. What's your team? Well, I'm going, okay, I didn't have one. Again, being from Portugal, my team from Portugal is sporting. But for for English teams, I'm I'm a Liverpool fan because I know a lot of people from Liverpool. So I I, I sort of adopted to being, I sort of say, Scouser, as they say. That's fair enough, Scouser. That's fair enough. (laughs) All right, ready for the worst story of the week, my friend? Let's hear it. Okay, so this week's story comes from Peachtree, Georgia. Big wrestling state. Everyone knows Georgia has a lot of links to to old school wrestling, right? So this is perfect. 
So there was a man who quit his job, like a lot of people mostly do nowadays. So he submitted his two-week notice, but his boss at the time was not really impressed. I don't know if he just wanted him to stay or if he was going to be short-staffed, who knows. But the employee quit anyways, citing that it was a toxic work environment and after eight years, he couldn't take it anymore. So he washed and returned his uh, uniform, so I guess this guy was like a blue-collar worker, and was told that he should see his last paycheck within two weeks. So guess what happened? His last paycheck never came. So when he confronted the company, he was told that the boss said that he didn't get his last pay because he caused damages to the workplace before he left, which was total bullshit. He never did any of this. So he didn't expect to get paid, but still filed a complaint against his former employer. Long story short, five months later, he got paid what he was owed. Now here's where it gets weird. Guess what he got paid in, (laughs) if you were to guess. What he got paid in? Yes. I'm going to say he got paid in small change. (laughs) You got it. He got got paid in 500 pounds or, to be exact, 227 kilograms worth of pennies, which adds up to 900 US dollars. (laughs) Really? Oh, wow. So... Deposit two big bags in front of him. No, worse. His boss came and dumped it all in his driveway, and the poor man had to scoop it up, put it in a wheelbarrow. It all fit. Now it's sitting in his garage. But here's where it makes another turn. Oh, no. The boss dosed it in some kind of oil, so now this poor man can't even go and trade it in. Oh, really? Oh. It's just a mountain, a big tarmac mountain sitting on his driveway. (laughs) No, I got to ask you. Has any promoter tried to ever pay you in pennies or any other thing other than money? Um, yeah, I've been offered uh, <laughs> food before. Oh, shit, sure, that's it. Lunch or something like that. Um, <laughs> no, I've had to um, escort a promoter down to a ATM machine to withdraw my wages. Oh, okay. Once or twice before, yes, that was always <laughs> fun. Um, but I don't think I've ever been paid anything that would... There was there was um there was a promoter who did a runner before paying any of the boys. Okay. But silly him, he left his laptop computer and all of his merchandise behind. So oh my god. We we all paid ourselves out of, out of that. Nice. <laughs> That's just when I saw somebody walking off with the laptop computer, I was like, Wow, you got triple payday tonight then <laughs> with that. <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's crazy. Oh, that is crazy. Oh, my God. Well, thank you, Doug. Thanks very much for coming aboard. Now's the time. Plug all your stuff where people could get a hold of you. Anything you want to promote, floor is all yours. Okay, yeah. Well, social media is the main thing for me at the moment. Twitter, I'm at Doug Williams UK. I'll put up um, all my upcoming dates, my appearances, um, a little commentary about little bits and pieces sometimes. Um, I try not to be too controversial anymore on there. You know, I don't like getting into arguments. Um, I know. Yeah, then you've got uh, my Instagram as well, which I'm really trying to push at the moment, um, which is at Doug Williams GB. Um, and I put up loads of photos, a retrospective of my career, different, you know, times, you know, uh, periods of my career. There's pictures of all sorts on there, but also. Uh, promoting my upcoming dates again, and promoting new merchandise and all that sort of thing. So those are, the, those are my two go-to social media-wise. Um, there's been dates announced for me. They're all UK-based at the moment, obviously. Right. Um, so if you look on social media, you'll see all those um, upcoming appearances. And if you're based in the UK and, and listening to this, then please come along and watch me, and I hopefully shall entertain you. 
That's awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter under Finger Styles. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast DAP at gmail.com. Please rewind to the top of the show. Support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out, helps me out. And please, most importantly, rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms. Okay, one last thing. You said it in passing. You were into judo. You were a judo champ. Are you still into judo? Are you an MMA fan? Like, how did all this come about? Uh, I well, hey, uh, I did judo from a very early age. In fact, I um, I just moved house, so okay. I've re- um, I'm packing a load of boxes, and I just happened to find um, my first ever judo membership card from the first ever club that I joined. Oh wow! And it was from 1980. Oh shit! <laughs> when I was 80 years old, so wow. that's amazing. Yeah, I did judo from that from eight until probably until 16 years old. Oh. Um, and then I had a break for about a year. And then, yeah, 19 years old, I was a uh, British Judo champion at my weight class, wow. which was under 72 kilos at the time, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and I don't really follow judo. I'll always watch it on the Olympics, though, okay. because I'm always interested to watch sure. watch that and see how it's evolved from when I did it to how ah. it is now. Like all combat sports, judo has evolved tremendously. Um Again, MMA, I don't really watch it to any great extent. I will watch the big fights when they occur. Sure. I'm not a fan of the fact that a lot of it's all stand-up now. I'm very much a grappling guy. I, I you know what you. I mean? Because I'm not really a boxing fan either. Okay. Uh, so, if I know it's great wrestlers that are going at each other, I'm more inclined to have a watch. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where I stand with with, with that. Those, uh, those sports. And you know what? It's so true. Everyone wants to see a nice knockout, which granted, is it's nice. When two guys actually know what they're doing, it's beautiful. But at it's the same time, I don't understand these fans. Okay, if you want to just see stand-up, go watch kickboxing, go watch boxing. To me, MMA is the whole thing. I like a guy who could take someone down, who could do stand-up, yeah. like, for example, Canadian GSP. Yeah. He could he could box with that jab with killer. Then he could take down and he could do stuff on the ground too. And I hate the people, oh, they're just humping on the floor. I'm like, then you don't understand the sport. Watch something else. Right? Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, yeah. To me, the, 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 the skill of just, just, I know what it's like when you're on the floor and someone's on top of you, how difficult it is not to be able to keep yourself, yes, just keep yourself so tense in such a position that they can't do anything to you. Right. Because the moment you give them that, that opportunity, that little, if you loosen up at all, if you relax it's even a slightly bit, Boom! They're on you with something. Exactly. And I know what. So I can things I can appreciate that when I watch it. Maybe a lot of people can't. So a lot of people just looks like two people are lying there. Right. You know, just but the, <laughs> the sheer amount of energy, I know, and stamina and perseverance it takes to do that for five for a five, for the best part of five minutes in a round is 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 it's just you know incredible. Yeah, no kidding. On that note, he's Doug. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace. Mm-hmm.